The second Bible reading is taken from Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 to 45. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then the fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then the mighty king will appear, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days she will be handed over, together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arrive to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south, the violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege rams and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send, send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. 
When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. This is God's word. Thanks, thanks, Natasha. Uh, we're going to be working through Daniel 10 and 11 today, as I'm sure you felt as we're reading it there. It's a bit of a tough passage, so it would be great to keep your Bible open so you can follow along uh, as we work through it. But as we begin, I'm going to pray for the, our time now, so please pray with me. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And we thank you that that includes even uh, difficult passages like our passage today. Uh, So we pray that today uh, you would be working through our time to achieve your purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope is a powerful thing. Hope can get us through difficult times. Uh, As you already know, as John mentioned today, uh, earlier, today is Anzac Day, the day where we celebrate those who have fought for our country, those who have risked their lives, and even those who have died for our country. And um, and hope was one of the things that got them through. Now, uh, in those wars, they faced incredible danger. And uh, indeed, my pa uh, fought in World War II, and he experienced many great dangers. Uh, he was in lots of different battles, but in particular, he was in one dangerous battle where he almost died. And do you know what they did about it? Interestingly, uh, they made a comic about it. Uh, so my pa is basically a superhero. Uh, here's, the co- here's the comic they made of my pa um, and the particularly dangerous battle that he was involved in. So it tells the story of how he, uh, some of his fellow soldiers were pinned down by enemy soldiers and he uh, picked up big heavy ammunition cases and ran through enemy gunfire uh, to deliver these uh, ammunition cases to the Australian soldiers that were pinned down. And then at another stage in there, he then had to get grenades and use those to uh, fend off the enemy soldiers. And yeah, it's quite amazing. If you want to uh, look at it in detail, have a chat with me later, I'll show it to you. Uh, but he actually won some medals for it. And uh, there's a photo of my pa and my nana as well with uh, some of the medals that he won for uh, his acts of bravery in World War II. And so certainly I'm very thankful to our, uh, to our soldiers for the way they risked their lives for our sake. But the question is, what got them through? What was it that enabled them to face enemy gunfire? What was it that enabled them to keep going as there were grenades and bombs exploding all around them? What was it that enabled them to keep going as they saw their friends die? And what was it that enabled them to keep going as they faced death? Well, it was hope. Hope that one day the war would end and they'd be able to return home again. Hope that one day they would win and freedom would prevail. Hope that one day the world would be a better place for their children and their family to grow up. See, hope was what got them through. And hope is a powerful thing. Hope is what keeps us going in tough times. When we're at work and it's a particularly busy period, and when the workload feels unbearable, when we're exhausted and we feel like giving up, what is it that gets us through? Well, it's hope. Hope that as soon as we get through this busy period, things will get better. Hope that one day the busyness will lessen. Hope that one day we might get a job where the workload is easier. Hope is what gets us through. Or in the midst of relationship breakdown, where there's anger and there's bitterness and there's resentment, hope is what gets us through. Hope that one day the relationship will be restored. Hope that one day the pain will lessen. 
Hope that one day the sense of betrayal will be gone and the scars will heal. Hope is what gets us through. And even last year in the pandemic, as we were locked down for months on end, hope was what got us through. Hope that one day the lockdown would end. Hope that one day would be free again. Hope that one day there'd be a vaccine. Hope was what got us through. See, what sustains us in life is hope. And today's passage, Daniel 10 and 11, is all about hope. Daniel's given a vision that gives him hope, that gives God's people, that gives us hope. And so what we see in it in chapter 10 is it builds towards this vision. It builds towards this message of hope. And that message of hope comes at just the right time. Uh, The year is 537 BC, the third year of King Cyrus. And so by now, Cyrus has allowed the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. Now, that was tremendous news for God's people. Uh, It was a source of incredible joy and celebration for them. They're finally able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It would be a little bit like being able to rebuild your family home if it had burned down. Because, in a sense, this was their spiritual home. And so they were overjoyed to get to return and rebuild. But do you know what happened? Uh, The book of Ezra tells us that uh, they encountered some obstacles, some fairly big obstacles early on, and those obstacles actually resulted in the rebuilding of the temple stalling and then stopping. And so, as you can imagine, this was extremely disappointing for God's people. After 70 long years in captivity, they were finally able to go home and rebuild the temple, and yet, so quickly, things stalled and then stopped. It would have been uh, so deflating for them, so demoralizing. And that's likely then what Daniel is mourning about in verses 2 and verses 3. Uh, Daniel mourns and fasts for a couple of weeks, which suggests that he's engaging in this intense period of prayer. And it's in this significant time that Daniel receives a vision. And the whole point of this vision is to give Daniel hope to give him hope when he's feeling hopeless. And as this vision is about to be uh, shown, a spectacular figure appears. And did you see how it describes this figure that appears? Have a look at verses 5 and 6 with me. It says this, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist His body was like topaz, his face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I mean, it's an incredible, astonishing description, isn't it? He's dressed in linen, just like a priestly garment. There's a belt of gold around his waist, which is a sign of royalty. He's got eyes of fire and a powerful voice which uh, suggests the presence of kind of overwhelming majesty. And lightning in the Bible is uh, characteristic of a theophany, that is, an appearance of God. I mean, this is clearly an incredible figure, someone of great might and stature. And so the question then is, who is it? Who is this figure? In the earlier visions in Daniel 8 and 9, the messenger is the angel Gabriel. 
But here in Daniel 10, it's likely, it's, we're not told, but it's likely that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. And how do we know this? Well, it's because in Revelation, John picks up extremely similar language. So, uh, keep your finger in the book of Daniel, but also flip over with me to Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. So, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, John says this, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So already that should be uh, reminding us of Daniel. And this one, someone like a son of man, was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. See how similar that is uh, to what we've seen there in Daniel 10. And so even though it doesn't tell us for sure, it's likely that this is Jesus. Now, uh, Daniel in our passage is the only one that sees this figure. Though in verse 7, those around uh, Daniel do seem to hear the voice of this figure. And in fact, merely hearing the voice causes them such terror that they basically run away and hide. Uh, Daniel's left there all alone by himself but he can't stand in the presence of this amazing figure. Uh, he turns deathly pale, verse 8, and once he hears the figure, the figure speak, uh, he's basically so overwhelmed that he faints, verse 9. But right when he's feeling overwhelmed and out of his depth, do you see what happens? In verse 10, Daniel receives a touch to comfort him. Now, uh, from here, it seems like this is actually a different figure speaking, and that's because in verses 13 to 14, this figure that speaks now talks about how he was held up by, um, by the Prince of Persia. And so it's difficult to see Jesus being held up against his will. So it's likely this is a different figure. And at the start of verse 11, uh, this new figure encourages Daniel. He calls him, you who are highly esteemed. And then for the rest of verse 11, he basically says that he's been sent to speak to Daniel. And so Daniel's able to stand up even though he's still feeling weak. And then did you see the message or what this figure tells Daniel? Have a look at verse 12. Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. See, this figure tells Daniel, your prayers have been heard and you're about to get a response. See, as Daniel prayed for understanding, God gives it. See, at this time where Daniel's feeling completely hopeless, so discouraged by the situation with the temple, hope is given. A vision that will bring hope. Now, there was a delay in this answer coming, and did you see what caused it? And we're told in verse 13 and also a little bit in chapter 11, verse 1, uh, the delay was caused by the spiritual war that's going on behind the scenes. The spiritual war between God and His, God and his angels and the devil and His servants. See, the devil didn't want Daniel to receive this message that he's about to receive, this vision, because he didn't want Daniel to get the hope that's going to come from it. And so he tried to stop it through his servant, the prince of Persia. 
And then before we get to the vision in chapter 11, uh, we see this back and forth where in verses 15 to 17, Daniel says he's not strong enough to hear the upcoming vision. And so the figure then gives him strength in verses 18 and 19. And it reminds us that ultimately, we can only hear what God has to say by God's strength, not by our own. We need God's help to understand His truth. And so then we uh, come to the vision, what's written in the book of truth. And so the question then is, well, what is this vision? What is this message of hope? And in short, it shows us that throughout history, there'll be persecutors and the persecuted. There'll be figures who rise up and persecute God's people. But that eventually, God will hold them to account And it gives us this message through the framework of the kings of the north and the south. Uh, These were the two kingdoms that, or two of the kingdoms that came about from the Greek Empire when Alexander the Great died. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. Now remember, the uh, Greek Empire was split into four sections uh, when when Alexander the Great died. Uh, So these are the four sections, four different colours. And the vision in particular, though, focuses on two of those kingdoms. It focuses on the kings of the south, the Ptolemaic dynasty, and it focuses on the kings of the north, the Seleucid dynasty. And the reason it focuses on these two kingdoms is because sandwiched in between them are God's people, Jerusalem, the beautiful land. And see, the result of this, the result of it focusing on these two kingdoms, is that it gives us quite a different take on history. Uh, Other takes on history marginalise God's people. Uh, Palestine, the land of God's people, is just seen as a land bridge between the north and the south, insignificant. And yet, biblical revelation shows God's people as the centre point. They're the key to history. And so that's why this vision revolves around the two kingdoms on either side of them. And essentially what it does is it zooms in on, uh, on that area there. So it zooms in on the, on the beautiful land and what's happening just around it. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to go through all of the little details in the prophecy or in this vision. And so what I've done is given you this handout here. And what it does is goes through in detail each verse and shows you the uh, historic events that happened. And what you'll notice when you look at it, it's not a long read, so have a read of it later today. What you'll notice is the incredible accuracy of God's prophecy here, of God's vision here. You'll notice the incredible accuracy it predicted, events that happened hundreds of years later. And it's quite an amazing thing to look at and what it makes clear to us is that God is active in the little details of history, as well as in the big details. So do have a read through that handout later on. But in short, verses 5 to 20 show us the back and forth between these two kingdoms. Uh, First one gets on top, then the other gets on top. Uh, They fight back and forwards. They try and use political intrigue and marriages to get power and to get on top. And ultimately to try and defeat each other. So we see this back and forwards. But then what happens? From the kings of the north arises one particular king, the contemptible man, verse 21. 
This is the great persecutor. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll likely know who this is. It's a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was a brute of a man. And what we get in verses 21 to 35 is that it centers around who he is and what he did. But then what happens in verses 36 to 45 is that it moves forward in time, to the end of time, to the final persecutor, one who'll come and persecute God's people at the end of history. And so what you'll notice as we look at it is there's lots of similarities, though, between what Antiochus did and what this final figure does. And that's because, in a sense, Antiochus is a pattern of the one to come, a type that shows us what to expect. And actually what we find when we look at Antiochus and when we look at the final persecutor is that they're actually a pattern for all of history, for all of human history. See, right throughout human history, we see great persecutors who come and persecute God's people. And what these verses do is help us understand what these persecutors will be like. And so then the question is, well, what are they like? Well, they're cunning and they're crafty. They use deceit, verse 23. And they trick people into following them, verse 21. They'll seduce people and they'll use flattery to win people over and then they'll backstab them, verse 24. See, those who persecute God's people, these persecutors who arise, use cunningness and craftiness. They also are astoundingly arrogant, are often setting themselves up as equal or rivals to God. You just need to look at Antiochus' name to know that this was how he saw himself. Uh, Epiphanes means God manifest. He saw himself as a God. It's startling arrogance. Uh, could you imagine if we had a politician who did that? Imagine if we had Scott God manifest, Daniel Epiphanes. Like, it's incredible. He had such arrogance to set himself up as a God. And it's the same with the final persecutor. Uh, he sets himself up as a rival to God. Have a look at verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. See, this final figure tries to set himself up to rival God and he says incredible things about God. This is what the persecutors of God's people do and we see it right throughout history. In fact, we see it at the moment with Xi Jinping uh, from China. So certainly he's an enormous persecutor of God's people. And one of the things he's done is he's told the Christians in China they have to take down any scripture verses they have up on the wall or any photos or crucifixions they have on the wall. And do you know what he's told them they have to replace those with? Photos of himself. Essentially what he's saying is, I'm God. Put me in the place of where you'd put God. It's startling arrogance. He's doing just what these persecutors here have done. He's lifting himself up to the place of God. And that's what persecutors do. And what else do they do? Oh, they attack God's people. In verses 30 to 35, Antiochus did just that. Uh, when he was humiliated by the Romans and their armies in about 168 BC, he went back to his land in an enormous fury. Verse 30, 
And what he did then was he vented that fury by attacking God's people. He attacked and sacked Jerusalem. He slaughtered God's people. He killed the high priest. He burned the Torah. He banned sacrifices. And he even set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. See, he was vicious and ruthless and brutal in his attack on God's people. And we see then, the same thing will happen with this final persecutor in verses 36 to 45. He's vicious in his attacks against God's people, verse 40 and 41. And he tries to annihilate many, verse 44. And what we see is that these attacks against God's people go right throughout history. Under the Roman emperor Nero, Christians were fed to lions while people watched entertainment for the masses. In Japan, in the 1500s and 1600s, Christians were tortured and killed, hung over open fires and crucified. Under the Soviet regime in Russia, it's estimated that between 12 and 20 million Christians were killed. And in his great purge, Stalin killed over 105,000 clergy, ministers, and even today, uh, some estimates put the number of Christians, or the number of Christian martyrs, at over 100,000 every single year. 100,000 Christians killed every single year for their faith. See, this is what persecutors do. They violently and ruthlessly attack and kill God's people. And what this vision shows us is that that's the pattern of history. Right throughout history, there'll be those who rise up, who cause extreme persecution for God's people. They'll seduce, and they'll flatter, and they'll attack, and they'll deceive, and they'll set themselves up against God. See, this is the vision in Daniel 11. And it shows us that history will be filled with persecutors, those who despise God and His people. And so the question then is, why is this a message of hope? Why does it give us hope to hear that we're going to be persecuted? I mean, it's the opposite of what we'd expect a message of hope to be. And so the question is, why is this a message of hope? Well, it's because of how it ends. The final verse is the key. Did you see what verse 45 says? Have a look at verse 45 with me. Uh, this great persecutor will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet, he will come to his end and no one will help him. See, that's really the key to this message. For those who persecute God, then what's in, God's people, then what's in store? They will come to their end and no one will help them. It might seem like they're in charge now. They seem powerful and unassailable. They seem like they can do as they please. But one day, that will change. They will come to their end and no one will help them. For Antiochus, he thought he was invincible and that he could set himself up as a god and do as he pleased. But one day he came to an end and no one helped him. 
And it's the same throughout history. When the Roman Emperor Titus uh, sacked and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, he thought he could do as he pleased, that he could burn down the temple and kill God's people. But one day, he came to an end and no one could help him. And what about Mao Zedong, who slaughtered countless Christians who tried to essentially eliminate, exterminate Christianity from China? He thought he was in charge. He thought no one could touch him. And then, one day, he came to an end and no one could help him. And it will be the same for this great persecutor at the end. Though he might seem powerful, though he might seem unassailable, one day, He'll come to an end and no one will help him. See, this is the fate of all who stand against God and stand against God's people. They will come to their end and no one will help them. And that brings us great, incredible hope. Hope as we know that God rules. God is the king of history and he will hold his enemies to account And living in light of that fact that God rules, then enables us to live distinctly, even in times of persecution and suffering. Because as God's people, there will be opposition and persecution and suffering. There'll be times when this is so intense. And in those times, there are two ways to respond. In the vision, the faithful stand firm against Antiochus. Have a look at verse 32. With flattery, he'll corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. See, people who know their God will stand firm against the persecution. In the vision, the faithful are also described in verse 33 as wise. That is, they know the truth of things, they know the reality of the world, that God rules history. But there's also another way to stand. Uh, did you see it in the passage? In the, it's in the first half of verse 32, and in it, we see that there will be others who compromise and give in. They'll be seduced by the flattery, and they'll break their covenant with God. My question we all need to reflect on is, which group do we fall into? Which group will we fall into in the face of persecution? A man called uh, John Chrysostom certainly fell into the first group. He'd be regarded and was regarded and is regarded as a man that knows God rules history. Uh, Chrysostom was the bishop of Constantinople around 400 AD and his story is pretty incredible. Uh, At one stage, he was standing before the empress Eudoxia and she demanded that he give up his Christian life, his Christian preaching. She demanded he give it up on pain of banishment. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being banished from where you live, from Melbourne, from your home, from your family, from your friends, from all that you know. I mean, that's an incredible threat to make. Imagine how scary, how intimidating that must have been for Chrysostom. And it would have been so easy for him to give in. But he didn't, because he lived in light of the fact that God rules history. And so, do you know what he said to her? Uh, This is what he said in the conversation that resulted, Chrysostom has said, "Uh, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. 
but I will kill you, the empress said. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures, Eudoxia said. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left, Eudoxia responded. No, you cannot, John said, for I have a friend in heaven whom you cannot separate me from. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. How incredible is that? That gives me tingles. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. How is he able to say that? How is he able to defy the empress? Well, it's because he lives in light of the fact that God rules. And he knows the truth of verse 45. He knows that one day Eudoxia will come to her end and no one will help her. He's living in light of the fact that God is the true ruler. And one day he will hold her accountable for her persecution. See, only in God can we find the true hope that we need. Have you got that hope? Are you living in light of the fact that God rules? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the reality of this vision. We thank you for the way it uh, so accurately and truthfully engages with history, both uh, past, present and future. We thank you for the uh, real look it gives on the world, that there's a reality that uh, there will be persecuted, persecutors, and as God's people, we will be persecuted. Uh, So we thank you that it doesn't shy away from that, but particularly we thank you for the wonderful message that's contained at the end of that vision, verse 45. We thank you for the reminder that one day you will hold these persecutors to account. We thank you that uh, you rule history and we ask that you would help us to be like the wise in the passage, that we would cling to you and that we would defy worldly authorities and powers that try and persecute us, knowing that there's nothing they can do to harm us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.